Welcome to Intriguing Interviews, where fascinating people share captivating stories. I'm Chad Elliott, your tour guide on this audio hitchhiking journey. Today, we'll talk with Leslie Howell, Costa Rica's legendary sloth whisperer. To prepare you for our Central American adventure with Leslie, let me take you on a trip to Costa Rica, where exotic creatures share breakfast with you, where a three-hour tour can lead to excruciating pain, and where an airplane flight includes both far more and much less than you ever dreamed. In late 2015, my girlfriend at the time, Teresa, said to me, Chad, I'm stressed and exhausted from work. You can plan our entire two weeks in Costa Rica. I know whatever you plan will be perfect. Don't worry, I said, looking deeply into her eyes. I'll take care of everything. It's December 28th of 2015. We've already been in Costa Rica for a week when our little 14-seat airplane lands with a jolt in a tiny airport in the Osa Peninsula, which rests in the southeast corner of Costa Rica. We pull our luggage from the plane, leave the airport, and walk around the tiny town of Puerto Jimenez, where we buy groceries. Then, after some searching, we find a driver. He drives us past very modest homes, past small farms, past seemingly abandoned churches, and past lots of trees, all the way to the end of a gravel road in the middle of nowhere. He drops us off and drives away. Then Teresa and I saddle ourselves with our luggage and groceries and march into the jungle. The heat of the day rages on as we wade across a shallow river, push through lush forest, trek up and down hills, well, mostly up hills, and after 45 minutes, arrive dripping in sweat to the top of a final hill. Here, we see our home for the next week, a ramshackle hostel patched together from what people could carry up the treacherous path we've just traversed. We soon find the man who owns the hostel, a middle-aged American who wears nothing but flip-flops and a pair of ripped boxer shorts. He welcomes us with a hearty Pura Vida, which is the typical Costa Rican greeting. Then he gives us a brief tour of the area. As he shows us around, he encourages us, as he encourages all of his guests, to feel free to walk around nude. Plenty of people do, he says. I've got no problem with it. Our hostel stands just outside the border of Corcovado National Park, known as Costa Rica's Amazon. In the mornings, we wake to the calls and crashes of howler monkeys. Then, as we eat breakfast, huge hummingbirds hover at flowers just 10 feet away to eat their own breakfast. And as the sun cooks at midday, we relax in hammocks that hang in the shade of the trees and watch toucans rest up in the branches as scarlet macaws circle overhead. It's peaceful and idyllic. After a couple days, Teresa and I want to take some local guided tours. We decide to start with kayaking, then try horseback riding and maybe take a biking tour into the national park. 
So, on the morning of our third day in paradise, we wake at dawn with the howler monkeys, eat breakfast with the hummingbirds, and trek out of paradise to our own destruction. Standing next to our kayaks on a beach by Puerto Jimenez, our guide gives us an in-depth safety talk. He says, keep your life jackets with you, even if you choose not to wear them, and, well, Pira Vida. Then he lets us apply a bit of his sunscreen, since we forgot ours at the hostel, and helps us push our kayaks into the waters of the Golfo Dolce. It's lovely. Shimmering blue water, the occasional fish swimming by, at one point, we see a caiman, which is a small crocodile, warming itself on a beach in the strong Costa Rican sun. When we reach an island, we land and walk over to a coconut tree, where our guide wants to show us how to harvest fresh coconuts and drink the juice. So he grabs a long branch and jostles the coconuts in the tree. It doesn't work, so he jostles harder. Finally, a coconut falls. But, like in a 1930s Warner Brothers cartoon, it lands squarely on his head. We check on our guide, and he's as okay as you can be after being hit on the head with a small bowling ball. So we continue our tour. Luckily, no more accidents befall us, and after three hours, we kayak back into the harbor feeling pleased. Though Teresa and I are a bit pink. The sun was harsh, and our one application of sunscreen wasn't enough, so we can feel the burn. As we buy groceries for the hostel, we feel the burn grow hotter. As we ride in a car back to the middle of nowhere, we feel the burn become fire. And as we carry our groceries over the river and through the woods and up and down the hills, we feel our skin boil. Within a few hours, our ankles, which are burned the worst, swell up to twice their normal size. It's impossible to squeeze into shoes. And even without shoes, we can't stand for long before the pain becomes too much. Suddenly, we have a profound epiphany. We're not that bright. Unable to walk, we give up on the idea of hiking and biking and horseback riding. Instead, we stay in our favorite hammocks observing nature, and in my case, reading a tattered copy of Huckleberry Finn. We're in paradise, so there's no better place to burn. The howler monkeys, hummingbirds, and scarlet macaws still fill our days with wonder. And when we have to go after a few days, we regret saying goodbye to this serenity and beauty. As we leave, we try and fail to keep our baggage from rubbing against our burns as we carry it through the jungle to the dirt road where a car carries us back to civilization. A few hours later, at the tiny airport in Puerto Jimenez, we crawl into another little 14-seat airplane for our flight back to Costa Rica's capital, San Jose. Driving to San Jose would take at least six hours, but our flight will take a mere 45 minutes and allow us time to eat a nice dinner and get sleep before our flight back to the U.S. at 6 in the morning. After a slight delay, our little plane taxis onto the runway. But then it stops, and the pilot looks back at us, and he's visibly upset. I won't fly this plane tonight, he says. I won't fly. Thank you.
When I purchased our plane tickets from Puerto Jimenez back to San Jose, I chose the last flight of the day at 6 p.m. so that we could spend as long as possible in paradise. What I didn't know is that the reason the last flight of the day was at 6 p.m. is because the sun officially set at 6.05 p.m. And these small planes aren't equipped to fly after sunset. And I didn't know that if our flight was delayed by just a few minutes, which it was, it meant we missed our cutoff time and the pilot couldn't fly safely. So now we're stuck in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere with less than 12 hours to get to the capital for our flight at 6.08 a.m. After 45 minutes of frantic scrambling, lots of sitting, and some raised voices, the airline employees introduce us to someone who is happy to take advantage of our situation. A man who offers to drive Teresa and me, along with another stranded passenger, to San Jose for a mere $500. A price that when split among the three of us is more expensive than the non-existent airplane flight we've already purchased. But we have no choice, so we tell him, fine, we'll take it. Then we hunker down and hold on. The drive from Puerto Aminas to San Jose could theoretically take six hours, but it's dark, the roads are crazy, and near San Jose, we hit the kind of traffic that allows you to get out of the car and stretch your legs. So it isn't until eight hours later, at 3 a.m., that the driver drops us off. Not at the room with the comfy bed we had already paid for, but at the airport, where we then try to nap in the hard airport seats but that's a lost cause. And soon, we're the first to walk through security, bleary-eyed, sweaty, and burned to a crisp. Now, on our flight home, rather than fly straight back to Seattle, I had planned for us to stop for a day in Las Vegas for an exciting night on the town. And for once, that's exactly what happens. After freshening up in our room at the Monte Carlo Resort and going to dinner, we go to a magic show, where Penn and Teller invite Teresa on stage to pull a rabbit out of a hat. Then they invite me on stage to help make an elephant disappear. Though it isn't really an elephant, it's a cow in an elephant's costume, but it does still disappear. This somehow seems a fitting end to our trip. Surprisingly, Teresa and I both look back on our time in Costa Rica very happily. It really was paradise. Even the disasters felt like grand adventures. And the first week of our trip included many wonderful experiences. Whitewater rafting through the wilderness, spelunking inside a cave to an underground waterfall, ziplining above a rainforest canopy. And it would be hard to top our very first stop on our trip, the Toucan Rescue Ranch. It's a sanctuary where Leslie Howell, my guest today, cares for injured and orphaned animals that come to her from all over Costa Rica. Teresa and I stayed in a guest house at the Toucan Rescue Ranch on our first night in Costa Rica. When we arrived, a double rainbow filled the sky as we wandered around the property looking at the toucans, macaws, sloths, owls, porcupines, ocelot, and an otter named Emma that all call the sanctuary home. That night, we ate Italian food with Leslie and her husband, but Leslie was gone for most of it, taking care of the animals, in particular, the sloths. 
Her husband said baby sloths only eat with their mother, and since these babies view Leslie as their mother, she's the only one who could feed them. And baby sloths need to be fed every four hours, so you can imagine how little sleep she was allowed. The next morning, we had breakfast on the porch of the sanctuary headquarters, which doubles as Leslie's home. As I ate, I sat next to a chair that had four baby sloths cuddling and crawling all over each other. The most adorable thing I've ever seen. In our interview, Leslie will tell you how she became the sloth whisperer. It's an intriguing story, one where a killer kitty lurks in the bathtub, romance lurks in the baggage claim, and dead mice lurk everywhere. So strip off your winter clothes, put on plenty of sunscreen, and get ready to bathe in the warmth of the mother to exotic animals, Leslie Howell. I'm curious if there was, as you were growing up, there was anything that kind of foreshadowed all of this? I was born in Washington, D.C., And then um, I was there until just seven years old. And then when I was seven, my dad moved us all to Costa Rica. So I actually lived here in Costa Rica from seven years old to 15 years old. So that was a a huge part of like the beginnings of, you know, coming back to Costa Rica as an adult. But one of, I always tell people, and we found an old picture of my family. Um, When I was in the States, my parents would like load us kids up in the car and they drive all night down to Miami and we would go to the parrot jungle. And there's an old picture of me at the parrot jungle with like these macaws all over me, you know, as a a tiny kid holding my arms out with like macaws. (laughs) And then my grandmother had saved a report that I had done all about parrots in third grade. And I thought, okay, well, (laughs) it all started there. (laughs) What was it that appealed to you about them? Well, one, that they could talk. That always was fascinating, right? That birds can talk. Um, And then two, I think I was just attracted to how beautiful, like the colors, the colors are. Because the tropical birds are just amazing. Okay. And then tell me more about as you were growing up. Living in Costa Rica from seven years old to 15, my dad was one of the kind of like the pioneer ecotourism folks on the west coast of Costa Rica. There was, you know, really no development out there yet. And so he bought three big farms and put them together and started selling lots and things. And but in order to do that, you know, there was no infrastructure or anything like that. So people, well, they were cutting in rows, they were doing wells, they were doing all this stuff and that people would find animals and people in the village would find animals. And they knew that that we loved animals. So they would always bring us animals that they would find. So at a young age, I was raising Costa Rican animals and just letting them go back into the forest because we were right there, <laughs> you know, in the middle of the forest. What, ki- what kind of animals were these? Well, these are lots of um, parrots. I raised lots of parrots as a kid. And then I also raised an ocelot and a jaguarundi and um, wow. some of the some of the cats, and then so, several monkeys and raccoons and things like that. Kinkajous. What are those? The kinkajous are they're called um, honey bears, South American honey bears. The only way to describe it is like a combination of a cat monkey because it has like a, a body just like a cat, <laughs> and it has a prehensile tail like a monkey. Huh. 
and they're like up in the trees. They're nocturnal animals. They're uh, absolutely adorable. They're, they look like the fur is honey color. So they're, you know, that, that bronzy color, huge eyes. Um, for being nocturnal and a long, long tongue because they they eat a lot of nectar from flowers and fruits and all that kind of stuff. But they're really fun. <laughs> they're fun to raise. <laughs> and I would imagine like each of these creatures needed something different. So you yeah. as a girl were just kind of making it up as you went. And totally. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how was that? Like what, what were you kind of learning and, and how did you figure out what they needed? One of the things I remember really specifically was that in the cat's diet, if you didn't give them like cod liver oil or things like that, there you know, the fur would get like all lumpy, you know, because it wasn't like a healthy diet. And so I remember my mom going to great lengths to like find, you know, all kinds of raw meats and everything and then add like supplements to that so that that, that wouldn't happen Nowadays, there's like formulas for everything. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but those times, it was, you know, it was tricky. And, um, and you know, we did the best we could and we released a bunch of animals back. And that sort of stuck with me as, as I grew up. It's fascinating. I, I'm curious if you remember, were there any uh, particular challenging animals that stuck out or like particular challenges that came up? The Jagarendi was a very wild kitty. I mean, even though it was a small cat, mm-hmm. um, that we had to, you know, for one was the diet, but then also she never, ever really got used to people. She was a real challenge just to handle or to feed because she'd like to hiss and scratch and, <laughs> <laughs> and everything. We were all like, you know, scared of the little kitty that was <laughs> in the bathroom. <laughs> And you say in the bathroom. So is that where you kept it? We had her, we had her initially in the bathroom until we <laughs> built some place for her. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> it was just a tiny kitten, you know, so... It was easy to to contain her. <laughs> it makes uh, it makes like just brushing your teeth an adventure each morning. Right. <laughs> okay, and so then and then you said you you moved out at did you say fifteen? Right at fifteen, um, my dad had sort of had enough of trying to do business in Costa Rica, which is very challenging. Hmm. At fifteen, we moved to England, and then I went to high school um, in London and finished up high school there, and then went back to the states for college. And how was it? How was it going from like the jungle and these wild animals over to where there's not that? I guess <laughs> exactly. It was a huge challenge, and Chris, you know, it was really cold too. Um, so mm. you know, we all we all got um, winter coats, you know, right away um, because that was like the biggest change was like the weather. My brother ended up getting a fish tank because he missed the animals so much. And I would feed all the pigeons <laughs> on the roof. <laughs> and so, the, and then how about the United uh, moving to the States? So then I moved back to the States for college and I decided to major in occupational therapy because I was really interested in having a rapport with patients, you know, kind of having a relationship with different patients that, that needed like therapy help. And in occupational therapy, you're always looking at like what's the highest level of function for a patient. So if a patient has had a stroke, you know, trying to teach them to do everything they can so that they can be independent. Mm-hmm. So I ended up actually working at, at a psychiatric hospital for many, many years. Um, that was in the 90s where the team building was very 
um, you know, up and coming and there was all kinds of ropes course and training and all of that kind of stuff. And so we implemented a ropes course at our hospital. And then um, I became a trainer with Project Adventure, the people that, that ran the ropes courses. And I traveled all over the States doing like corporate team building um, workshops for them. And then I also opened my own um, course um, up at Lake Tahoe at a hotel in Lake Tahoe that was doing a lot of corporate work. So so I kind of ventured out from being an occupational therapist for like, you know, 15 years and then doing like corporate training. And then everything changed when I decided to come on vacation <laughs> to Costa Rica. <laughs> and that was probably like maybe 1998. And how long had, had you been away from Costa Rica at that point? Like, had you visited it all? No, I hadn't visited at all. I left in like 79. Almost 20 years then. You can add up the years. I'm I'm getting really old. <laughs> but yeah. So I went, came back to Costa Rica and we went out to the old beach project, you know, where we grew up and it was full of lights and it was full of people and it was full of restaurants and I hated it. <laughs> I was like, oh no, this is like horrible. You know, there's 10 people on the beach now where I used to have the whole beach to myself. But I came back from that trip feeling my roots here and I felt like I was home and I said that to a couple therapists that I worked with, you know, I said, geez, I just had such a connection when I was back in Costa Rica and just felt like that was my home and everything. And they were just like, well, of course you felt that way because, you know, that was where you grew up and that's where da, 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 and those are the formative years. And I was like, well, nobody ever told me that before, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that it didn't hit me until I went back. And so... Then I decided that I needed to have like a piece of Costa Rica with me and that I had to get a bird. <laughs> <laughs> and so basically, since you left Costa Rica, you really, had you, had you gotten any pets? Did you have any animals at all? Or did you just, you were, other than like your brother's fish? <laughs> I had dogs. I had a couple of Shelties, but that was it. Yeah, no, other, no exotic pets. That's for sure. Had it occurred to you before you'd gone back? Oh, you know, it's nice having a dog, but like, I really wish I, I had the types of animals I had as a kid or. No. Yeah, it was it wasn't until I went back. But also I was really worried because up until 1992, I think it was where the United States signed a protection act for birds um, and they stopped importing birds into the states like from like the pet birds that are now like listed as endangered. So I was very concerned, you know, that if I wanted to get a bird in the States, that it wasn't a bird that was, you know, like caught in the wild and like shipped on some yeah. container. That would just sure. be horrible. Um, so I did a lot of homework then and realized that the birds that I was seeing then in the pet stores and in the, you know, adoption pages and stuff were birds that were had been bred in the States. Gotcha. Yeah. And and which so which kind did you decide to uh, get? Yeah, so I adopted a three year old um, terrible terrible bird. <laughs> <laughs> she's now twenty something, and she's still with me, and she's still terrible. <laughs> it's a, she's a miniature macaw. I named her Tico, which is the Costa Rican word for like Costa Rican. And what does she look like, by the way? Oh, she's beautiful. She's uh, like, a you know, like the big macaws. She's like a miniature one. So she's like half that size. She weighs like 800 grams or so. And she's um, all green, iridescent green with like blue on the head and red in the wings. 
and she had been in three homes. She was a horrible biter, very, very aggressive bird. And I can say 18 years later, she's still the same. (laughs) (laughs) Does she let you hold her and that kind of thing? Or is she she can't quite be tamed and she can't quite be let free? She, She will come down some, but she does still bite. But that's one of the interesting things that I found out was that um, in the United States, everybody that's, you know, kind of has pet birds and things like that. You know, we're talking about like mid 90s when that was all happening. Everybody would clip the wings on the birds, you know, so Mm. they couldn't fly away and people work. So like they're having very little interaction. So the aggression or the feather plucking or all these kinds of things that they start exhibiting that you would actually not really see in the wild, you know, because they're products of being crazy because they're locked up and in conditions that they shouldn't be in. Yeah, just like any of us would go crazy in that kind of situation. Exactly. Yeah. And so for um, for her, I decided to let her grow her wings out and fly. And that made a huge difference because she was, you know, getting off a lot of energy and being more, you know, more normal. If there is such a thing as a bird in captivity being normal, but yes. And, and when you say you let her fly, does she just have like a big, big cage she can fly within or? In when I was in Reno, we had a big bird room. Like I, I knocked the wall out of these two rooms. And so I had a big bird room and she basically huh. had the run of my house because nice. I didn't have the windows open, you know, all the time and stuff. So she would just fly around. <laughs> So after like having that experience with her, then I started just like kind of collecting unwanted um, pet birds in the States and adopting birds that were in, in very, you know, bad situations. So these are like birds that maybe people were keeping, they maybe got like taken away by the authorities? They they didn't get taken away by authorities. No, but fortunately, the people gave them up. So they would like get donated to the mm. bird club or back to the bird store. Or some lady called like the owner of the bird store that, you know, that knew me. And she said, you know, I've had this African gray and I just got married. And I'm going traveling and I'm going to put them down. I'm like, what? Wow. <laughs> like, you don't need to put your bird down. We can rehome your bird, you know, things like that. So that's such a weird uh, thinking pattern. It's a thing. It's it's really hard because birds live a really long time. So birds can live up to fifty years. There's been records of birds living up to eighty years. So when you have a pet bird, like you have to even like you know put the bird in your will, or who's going to take care of it sometimes, and that happens a lot here <laughs> in Costa Rica. But yeah, they they're really adorable when they're little, like everything. And then, of course, they grow up. And by three years old, the hormones start kicking in. And that's when they start screaming and biting. And that's like the average age that most people get rid of their birds. So I ended up with 10 birds with all different uh, (laughs) psychological (laughs) problems. (laughs) Probably had to do a lot of house cleaning. (laughs) And then I decided... It was my 40th birthday, and I was going to take a trip to Peru to see the macaws in the wild in Peru. And that was like the big the big shift mm-hmm. of um, once I went to Peru and I was part of uh, the Tambopata Macaw Project in Peru, 
Um, and I went there. Um, I actually went to visit like three or f- three times. Um, the director of that program said to me, hey, Leslie, there's a group in Costa Rica that have been breeding um, scarlet macaws and they've been releasing them. And it's a very elderly couple and they need help in Costa Rica. And I was like, done. <laughs> that, that job's for me. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I came back to Costa Rica. I, I worked for a year on paperwork um, to get my birds out of the States and into Costa Rica because most of them were endangered species. And so whenever you travel with endangered species, you have to do a lot of paperwork. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. So I moved here in February. It'll be um, 17 years ago with 10 birds and three dogs. <laughs> Congratulations on your upcoming 17th anniversary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, at what point did you get together with your husband? Um, I met him the first day I came back to Costa Rica. Ah, okay. <laughs> so I was moving here, you know, with all my animals in tow. And he was on the same flight. And when we were, you know, getting our bags and stuff, I had to go over to the, you know, to the side belt where they put the big, you know, boxes and things because I was waiting for my birds. And he was waiting for a box and he was talking to the guy on the other side of the flaps. And I said do you know them? And he said, well, you know, I worked for Continental. And I said, oh, great, you know, ask him for my birds. Because <laughs> by then I was just frantic. You know, they had been on the flight and I had a stack full of papers. And um, it's a long story, but he helped me through the whole process of getting my birds out of the airport, you know, in record time. And nobody was taken for quarantine. And I had every <laughs> Everything signed, sealed, and delivered, and I nicknamed him the angel at the airport. (laughs) (laughs) So then, uh, but then, of course, he lived in the States, and he was here. um, He's Costa Rican, but he was living in Houston, Texas, and working for Continental, but he was coming back here on vacation, but we kept in touch, and then, then like, oh, probably, like, not quite a year after I met him, he decided to move back to Costa Rica. And then we got married like three years after that. <laughs> <laughs> and so you uh, you started helping uh, this this couple who who had all these birds, and and did you wind up taking charge of their operation at some point, or what happened next? So because I spoke Spanish, um, they put me in charge of all of their paperwork, <laughs> all <laughs> of the managing of their staff, and all of the like interface with MENAI, which is the Costa Rican government that, um, like the fish and wildlife here in Costa Rica. So they gave you all the fun stuff to do. Exactly. Part of that was a real drag because like I wanted to be doing hands-on things with the birds. But the other side of that was, is that I got to know everybody within the wildlife department. And Uh so that was really, really helpful. And I also found out that, um, they were doing a great job and they really didn't need my help with birds and stuff. There were three other groups in Costa Rica all doing macaws. But as you know, Costa Rica has, you know, 900 or more species of birds. So there was like, everybody was like so focused on macaws. And I was like, okay, well, what about, you know, this cage of like toucans that's in the back of the property? What are we doing with them? Or, you know, what about raptors or those kinds of things? So there were all these uh-huh. other birds that they would just like be like oh okay well we'll we'll take him in but he's really not 
the favorite bird because he's not a macaw and we're really a macaw program. So I started, you know, seeing this pattern of, okay, everything was so focused on macaws that all these other birds weren't, you know, getting their needs met at all. And so I talked to the head guy in wildlife and I was like, hey, you know, anybody in Costa Rica working with toucans? Because these guys need a special diet. They, you know, need all this kind of stuff. And he's like, oh, no, Leslie, <laughs> nobody's interested <laughs> in toucans. And I oh. was like, well... I could be talked into being interested in toucans. <laughs> so, um, Is there a reason that nobody was interested in toucans? Well, the one they were enlisted as endangered. So, you know, that's ah. part of the reason. And also because they are so much more complicated. Um, I think it was kind of yeah. like, oh, let's, you know, really macaws are just, you know, phenomenal birds. So you get a, a lot more attention if you're rescuing, you know, like the favorite bird yeah. of the Americas. <laughs> that makes sense. And I'm curious, why are, uh, excuse me, why are toucans complicated? Like what's kind of, what's complicated about them? Yeah. So what most people don't know about toucans is that they actually eat a lot of protein in their diet. You know, people think they're just like Fruit Loops birds and just like um, fruit eaters, but they're not. And so they eat a lot of bugs they eat mice, they eat baby birds, they eat, um, <laughs> they'll eat like bats, they'll eat iguanas, wow. they'll eat all kinds of things. And so um, along with the fruit, but they have to have this diet that's actually um, has protein, but that, that source of protein doesn't have iron because they can get iron um, liver disease. And so the diet's complicated because you have to have the fruit and you have to have the protein, but you can't have too much protein because then you get the liver disease. So mm -hmm. when I said, you know, to them, hey, I'm interested in toucans, you know, I didn't really know that much about toucans, <laughs> but I said, I'm going to find out. And so I decided to open the Toucan Rescue Ranch. And that was only after like a year and a half of being here. Wow. So you kind of dived right into it. Yeah. <laughs> how was it? <laughs> and how how was it doing that? Was it a a, a big challenging project, or uh, did did it feel pretty smooth the transition into that? Fortunately, I had bought a, a property that was two two acres, so I had some space <laughs> uh -huh. where I could build, you know, nice flight, you know, for enclosures. You've been here, you know, yeah. you've, you've yeah. seen it. So it took me about six months to do all the paperwork, you know, all of the bureaucratic stuff had to happen. And, um, and then we opened basically for birds. Um, and we accepted, you know, everything, all kinds of parrots and everything. And then after about a year of accepting different parrots and toucans, of course, they called me and they're like, well, you know, you're Miss, you know, bird lady. So um, how about you take this like owl that's got a broken wing? And I'm like, I don't know anything about owls, you know, <laughs> except for owls hunt, <laughs> hunt mice. And I'm a vegetarian. So like the idea of feeding <laughs> owls, you know, <laughs> all of this meat isn't too appealing. And they're like, well, it's either like we take this owl with a broken wing to you or we're going to put them down. And I'm like, okay, well. Let me see what I can do. Uh, we amputated his wing and we put him in like a rehab program of having to like hop on different perches to, you know, like different um, perches that were like in a sequence so that he can learn to balance without his wing. 
And, and so I started using my training in occupational therapy then to rehab different animals that were coming into the rescue center. Huh. And so what did that look like? So like I said before, you know, you're always looking at what's the highest level of function in occupational therapy. So the highest level mm-hmm. of function for one of our animals is to be released back into the wild. And of course, there's every stage in between. And so clearly, if he has an amputated wing, he can't go back into the wild. But it doesn't mean that he can't go into a large cage with branches everywhere (laughs) Um, so that they can, you know, hop and get around. And um, one of those owls actually um, reproduced and we had little owlet babies and those babies were returned to the wild. Nice. So we've done, you know, a nice a really nice rehab program for the raptors and then for, you know, for like the toucans that have come in as well. And we actually um, have, there's a company in the United States called Missouri and they do a lot of the foods for like all the exotic animals that are in zoos. And um, through contact on our board of directors, Jerry Jennings, um, he has a um, project in San Diego called Emerald Forest Bird Gardens. He's the foremost toucan expert like in the world. And he and I became good friends. He became a member of our board of directors. He put us in touch with Missouri. And now we and Missouri donates the low iron <laughs> pellets <laughs> to us um, from the States. And so people bring us um, the different diets that the toucans need um, because it would be very difficult to have like that much live food, you know, and different things for them. So we supplement crickets, mealworms, baby mice and all that kind of stuff. But the majority of their diet will be like the fruit and then the Missouri pellets. Gotcha. And and I'm curious, like with the owl, the baby owls, you want to raise them in order to put them out into the wild. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their their parents aren't like physically capable of showing them in certain ways how to hunt. I, yes. I'm curious about the process for that, like how you make it so they know how to hunt and these things, how, how you give them examples and whatnot. So um, the, we had to do a lot of learning because, like I said, <laughs> I didn't know anything about raptors. <laughs> um, I did go up to the States, though, and um, I met with a lady that, that, has, uh, that helps with raptors and owls outside of San Francisco. Um, she helped me with the owls. But one of the things that we do is, well, then I had to build a flight large enough that they could fly and swoop you know, down to hunt because we had uh-huh. to teach them to hunt. So everything that's happened like here at the Toucan Rescue Ranch has been like, oh, I'll say yes to an owl. And then I'll be like, oh, now we have to like build a cage. that's like a handicap cage. And then now we have to build like a flight cage, you know. So fortunately, I have wonderful folks that do, you know, Facebook campaigns for us and we raise money to to do all this stuff and thank goodness people, you know, make donations because we use money like that to build this huge flight. So we throw in live food. So then we have to have, of course, the live food. And so we actually have a biologist that takes care of a whole live colony for us. So we breed mice, rats, cockroaches, crickets, um, grasshoppers. That's it. Did I say mealworms? Mealworms. Um, so we breed all of that also. And, um, so that we always have like live rats to teach them to hunt. So 
One of the things that you can do is when they're juveniles is, I don't know how much gory detail you want. But Go ahead. <laughs> you Go can ahead. like take a dead rat and, you know, like, well, like you can tie like some like fishing wire, like ah. fishing cord, you know, so that it's like clear. But like you can like so that you're moving the rat across the grass so that the birds like sees him moving and like is interested in going after it. We found that we usually don't even have to do that, that they're just like wired, you know, for looking at all that stuff. So if we throw live food in, they figure it out pretty quickly. That's interesting. And at first we make it easy for them because we don't let the grass grow that high so that when they we first put them in the um, flight, you know, the animals are pretty exposed. And then after a couple of weeks, the grass and everything is growing and then we'll throw live food in and they still have to hunt it and find it. Fascinating. So it gets more challenging. And then they have to hunt seven consecutive nights um, before we can open the door and let them out or take them to wherever it is we're going to release them. And we know that they're hunting, one, because we've put up cameras, you know, night cameras to verify, but also um, owls uh, regurgitate. Mm. We know that if we're finding, you know, the pellets all around with... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> little mice bones <laughs> that they're doing a good job hunting. <laughs> and you say you're still a vegetarian, right? How how is it how is it doing all this stuff yeah. as a vegetarian? <laughs> <laughs> it's gross. <laughs> um, it's well, fortunately, you know, because we have the biologist that takes care of the animals, and then I have wonderful <laughs> volunteers. <laughs> who don't mind doing this kind of stuff. Like, I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> but yeah, our volunteer program is is just, it's great because we have people from all over the world and we have like 12 volunteers at a time. So, yeah. you know, within that group, there'll be somebody that like, well, I don't mind doing it. And I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah, it seems like, by the way, that you're, you're, you know, number of volunteers and like your whole program there has grown quite a lot since we were there just uh I think we were there at like the end of 2015 and it seems like you just keep growing and growing and adding more people yeah well after five years of doing just birds we had been over to, on the Caribbean coast and my husband Jorge fell totally in love with sloths mm-hmm. and he was like bugging me about oh I think we should you know rehab sloths <laughs> <laughs> what did you say I said, we are only birds <laughs> because I hadn't really done mammals, you know, since I was a kid. And I was just, I was like, oh my God, there's so much work, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And it was, it was very intimidating to try to think of taking care of a baby sloth as needy as, you know, a human baby. So I said to him, I said, well, the property that we bought for to release the birds on, like we bought this property um, an hour from here in Southern Piquet, which is um, Caribbean lowlands. And it's it's one of the best birding spots in Costa Rica um, and best wildlife spots in Costa Rica. The properties, one is 25 acres and the other one is um, eight acres. And they're full of sloths, <laughs> two-toed sloths, three-toed sloths, three different types of toucans all different kinds of parrots, um, macaws visit us. Like So there's just a tremendous amount of wildlife in this area. So I said to him, I said, well, if you really want me to rehab a sloth, I'll tell them to bring me like an adult sloth with an injury that I can rehab. And then you just take it out to the farm, you know, and let it go <laughs> with the other sloths <laughs> in the wild. 
And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> we let the wildlife department know that we were interested in, you know, working with sloths. And I said to them, you know, an adult sloth that I can rehab and we can just turn around and let go. And they said, oh, okay, great. Because at that point, the only people working with sloths were all the way on the Caribbean coast, which is, you know, a six hour ride from the Central Valley. So the road often gets closed because of storms and it's a long way to travel if you have an injured sloth. So they were all very excited and they called me about a month later and said, Leslie, we have a sloth coming in from the highway. So I got this, you know, huge kennel ready for what I'm thinking is, you know, adult sloth, you know, hit by a car or something. And what came in was the tiny baby, um, which we named Millie, who you probably met. Uh, yeah. And Millie is now almost 12 years old, I think. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so that's what started the whole sloth <laughs> rehab. And now we actually, we have an entire um, sloth uh, release program out at the release site. We have volunteers there. We have tracking collars. So basically, I'll take care of the baby sloths and the injured sloths. And then when they're ready for release, it, um, if it's a baby, it would be at um, a year and a half to two years old. Um, then we turn them over to the volunteers at the Sloth Institute. We have different properties that we use for release. And then the volunteers from the Sloth Institute will put the tracking collars on them. And then we'll do a whole graduating process of opening the doors and, and letting them be free again. And right okay. now we're tracking about 20 sloths that we have out at the release site. And every they're out there all night, these kids that sign up to, you know, follow the sloths around and <laughs> track them and do research. And uh, I get, you know, beeps at three in the morning when there's a shift change of everything that's happening <laughs> at the release site with the sloths that are being released. And, Overall, they're doing really, really well. So the program's working, which is great. That's awesome. And so a sloth like, let's take Millie, for example, what is kind of her story or her autobiography? Mm -hmm. So um, we named her Millie for Milagro, and which means miracle, because it was a miracle that she survived because I didn't know anything about taking care of baby sloths <laughs> um, at the time. But I fortunately got through the first couple of days and then was hooked up with a wonderful veterinarian who is still our veterinarian, um, Janet Sendy. So Millie, we think, because she was found on the side of the road, so we think that mom was killed by a car or something. We really don't know. Most of the babies that we get into the program, um, it's usually something that where the baby's just found on the ground. So it could be that mom dumped the baby because the baby was sick. Um, sloth moms will do that or the babies will just kind of fall off because they're weak because you know, they have to really hold on um, to mom while she's climbing around and be like on her belly. Um, so we'll get, you know, sick babies that have fallen off. We'll get babies that from moms that have been electrocuted. So sadly, we have a lot of electrocution cases in Costa Rica where um, the sloths will go on the wires because the wires just look like beautiful straight vines. And if they touch two wires at the time, they get electrocuted. And a lot of the times the babies aren't touching the wires. So they'll be like found, you know, like on a deceased mom or something. Oh, wow. That's so sad. It's, it's horrible. It's, it's absolutely horrible. Sometimes we'll get babies with burns. 
And then we get a lot of sloths from being attacked by dogs Uh, uh, where, you know, they'll just be in rural areas and people will have their dogs, you know, out at the farm or something and the dogs will attack the sloth. So we get adult electrocuted. We get adult, you know, everything that goes for the babies goes for the adults too. We've done surgeries with sloths where we're putting, you know, orthopedic pins in bones and recovering them that way and actually getting them back out to the wild. Oh. We've done amputees uh, with sloths and they we have two amputees out now and they're doing great. What are their names? Um, one is Sombra and one is Socorro. And Sombra is video. She's going through the pouring down rain. We just posted on, on Facebook like a week ago. Um, of her, you can see her climbing in the pouring down rain, trying to find shelter with missing an arm. And she's going oh, wow. fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So the, the, the babies, they only like, they'll find one person as their mother. And like, so once you're their mother, that's it. Like you're the only other person they'll feed with. So that happened initially it was like with Millie, right? Going back to Millie. Because I was the only one here doing that. And then um, I had a group of like four or five babies. And I was invited to go give a talk in Adenal, which took me away for um, a day and a half. And I left a volunteer in charge of, you know, I had trained her to feed the babies and everything. And she calls me and she goes, Leslie, we've got a problem. (laughs) None of the babies will eat with me because my sense different. She said, but we figured it out. And I'm like, oh, you did? What, you know, what? And she said, I went in, I hope she's like, I hope you don't mind. But I went into your room and I took your t-shirt from your dirty clothes hamper and I put your t-shirt on and and then the baby started eating. And I'm like, oh, great. Thank God you're creative. Um, And so since that happened, I always now try to have two, at least two people, like two people that they're used to. I thought you were going to say you always leave your clothes for them to, to wear. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that too, but at least a couple people that, uh, that they're used to so that that doesn't happen. Okay. Gotcha. But yes, I'm still, I'm still sloth mom. Um, I'm still doing sloths every four hours. And I do have really? some help. I still I do have some help now though. So like during the days I have a vet that comes in that's like my assistant and then um twice two nights during the week she comes so that I can actually get some sleep. So uh, I'm better because <laughs> now I'm at least sleeping <laughs> a couple nights a week, you know, through the night. <laughs> Wow. So five, five, five days out of the week, you have to be awake every four hours. Every four hours. If we have really tiny ones, the ones that I have right now are, they're like four hours during the day, but then they'll go six hours at night. So it's not too bad. What is a typical day as far as like activities and what you're doing there? Because I'm still taking care of like little babies. I'm on, you know, the four hour schedule during the day. So a lot of times what I'll do is, you know, get up at like um, five to feed babies and then go back to sleep for a couple of hours <laughs> and then get up again around 830 or so. <laughs> and then once I'm up, you know, there's the million, I call it like the, the million questions. Once I'm out, like on the porch sitting at my little table, then everybody comes up to me with the million questions of the day. Uh-huh. Logistics of, you know, running two sites, soon to be three sites you know, making sure the ordering of the food, like 
we go through a thousand uh, pounds of papaya a week. Wow. You know, there's a lot of food ordering and diets and it's all of that. It's a lot of papaya. <laughs> it's a lot of papaya. Um, so there's like all of that kind of stuff that has to happen. I also have now a team of veterinarians. So I've got um, veterinarian interns from um, all over the world that are here. So we have like four people on like the Fox team, which is like veterinarians and different things to be here for emergencies and for the critical care patients that we have. So I'll always, you know, be in the clinic checking in with them. And then the afternoons, like, okay, feeding again at like one and like five or so. Then I try to do like a walk around the whole property. Most people, most of our volunteers leave around three. Um, so that's the time where I can just go walk around the property and it's very quieted down for the day. That kind of last hour in the day is when I go around and I check on different animals and see what's you know happening and just get my eyes on everybody. And then, like, right now, as soon as I hang up from here, like, at 7 o'clock, I have to start feeding again. And then at 12 o'clock, I'll feed again. And then <laughs> get some sleep. <laughs> I'm curious, how many sloths do you have? And actually, what are kind of the general numbers, like, overall of the, how many of these different animals you have there? So, we have about 300 and some animals at the rescue center. Um, at the release site right now, we have 20 sloths that we're tracking, and then we have another 15 that are in line for like the next batch <laughs> to be going out. And then I have seven little ones uh, now here with me at the at headquarters, let's say, at, at the ranch, at the Tucan Rescue Ranch. And then we have another 10 or so juveniles. Okay. So we have a lot of a lot of sloths. <laughs> got a lot of sloths. In, lot all, sloths. in all different in all different like, you know, rehab stages. <laughs> we really don't have enough volunteers to keep up with like the demand of the sloths that I have because I have a like a waiting list of sloths to be released. So I'm curious so cuz I remember you had uh you had porcupines, you had uh uh, an ocelot, mm -hmm. I think. Like you say, you, they just call you up and they're like, will you take this? And you go, sure. And then you go study and you figure out what you need to do to take care of it. So what, uh, is there one right. of these animals that is kind of the, the trickiest? Like, it sounds maybe like the, the um, sloths require the most effort on your part. Sloths definitely require the most effort, um, for sure. Um, we have a baby porcupine right now. She's tiny. She just fits like in the palm of my hand. Uh, she's adorable. And then we have, I don't know if you ever met Emma the otter, but we have a neotropical river otter. So she's been a challenge because uh -huh. it's fish. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to build, you know, I wanted to build her a swimming pool. So we actually did an online campaign and we raised $14,000 and we built her a swimming pool and a waterfall and everything. So that's, that's really cool. She loves it. Um, so that's been fun. That's been a challenge in terms of really like meeting, you know, her needs. I'd say our other real challenge is, well, toucans are always a challenge. We we did, um, it took eight years um, before we were able to breed toucans in captivity and figure out, wow. you know, what nesting and diet and all of that. And we're the first people to have 
toucans be breeding in captivity in Costa Rica and those babies we've released. Wow. And then the only other one that I'd say is a real challenge, but it's more of like enrichment activities because it's so active is we have a Tyra. And I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's like a large weasel, like a really large weasel. No, I've never heard of it. He's the hyperactive kid in the class. (laughs) 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 It's constantly needing enrichment activities. So that's a challenge. You're you're a very you're a very versatile uh, <laughs> animal keeper. So uh, so I'm curious, what are your what are your sort of goals for the future with with all of this? Like, where do you see the the Toucan Rescue Ranch maybe ten years from now? <laughs> well, it's pretty funny because if you had told me two years before, like I moved to Costa Rica, oh, in five years you're going to be living in Costa Rica you know, running a rescue <laughs> ranch, I would have said, you're crazy. Like, no. Um, but now that I'm here doing this, we actually have um, where the Soft Institute is in Manuel Antonio. They have all of their permits, are research permits to work with the sloths. Uh, but they don't have a rescue slender there that works with the sloths. So we're actually hoping between here and December to actually open um, like a clinic and a rescue center down there in Manuel Antonio, which is uh, four hours from here on the Pacific coast uh, so that we can, you know, help their program and support them and support the community. So we'll be opening um, a clinic and a whole rehab center there as well. Nice. So then we'll have three places. We'll have like the main place here in Aradia where I am. And then we'll have the uh, release site on the Caribbean side. And then we'll have release site on the Pacific side. Oh, that's fantastic. And that will be great because we always want the animals to go back to, you know, as close as possible to the area of origin so that if they're out from the Pacific, that they stay on the Pacific. And if they're from the Caribbean, that they stay on the Caribbean. That makes sense. So this is obviously a lot of work, like for the past more than a decade, you've been uh, working a tremendous amount. Uh, Why is it worth it to you? Like, you know, why is it worth all the effort? Well, (laughs) um, you know, there aren't that many centers really that have specialized in the things that we've specialized. So, you know, the toucans and the owls and the sloths and those kinds of things. You know, when you have a real emergency and you've, you're dealing with an electrocuted animal that's, you know, in horrible pain and you can actually rehab that animal, which we've done to the point of getting them back into the wild. You know, so like I, there's one case that's so special to me. His name is Ricky and he was a large, uh, older male sloth, um, two-toed sloth that had come in horribly electrocuted and we had to use anesthesia on him. Every three days to change bandages, he started having horrible seizures. We, you know, got through all of that. And I used to say to him, you know, you are not going to die in a kennel in the clinic. Even if it's one night out under the stars, we're going to get you back out for that one night. He was so bad. And he has now been out for almost a year. That's wonderful. And he shows up every now and then. We had to take the collar off of him because he was going so far away. And then he'll show up all of a sudden and then he'll stay within the property for a couple months. And I'll go out there and they're always like, 
Leslie, we think Ricky's back, but we're not sure it's him. And he doesn't, like, for anybody's voice, he doesn't lift up his head. And I go out there and I'll be like, Ricky, is that you? Did you come back and visit? <laughs> and then he'll lift up his head and look at me. And then we all know it's him because he has uh, an old scar on his face. So then we can see his scar and we know that it's it's Ricky. <laughs> Getting them back out like that is amazing. And then training the little ones to go out and, you know, live the life that they're supposed to live. It's all about the healing and, and getting them back out. To learn more about Leslie and her work, you can visit toucanrescueranch.org. While there, you can sign up for her email newsletter. For five years, it's been one of the only email newsletters I always open. It's just nice to see the fun things they're up to, like their sloth Iron Man games. Toucanrescueranch.org also has links to their other social media profiles, which you should totally follow, both to support Leslie and the animals, but also so you can be bombarded with cuteness. What's more? At their website, you can also buy great stuff and your money will help make Leslie's work possible. You can get shirts, posters, a special sloth blend of coffee, and my favorite, a Save the Toucan's Bikini, which, you know, I wear around the house all the time. I'm, I'm wearing it right now. Plus, you can also learn about visiting the ranch in person, which is the opportunity of a lifetime. Now, here's a bonus tip. During our stay at the ranch, we went just 10 minutes away for a tour of the Cebu Chocolate Factory. The co-founder, Julio Fernandez Amon, told us the history of chocolate and was absolutely fascinating. He's a wonderful storyteller. Plus, the chocolate is beyond anything I've ever tasted, truly. In comparison, all other chocolate is garbage. So if you're in Costa Rica, make sure to visit Cebu Chocolate. And if you're not in Costa Rica, but want to taste the world's best chocolate, shell out the money to have their bonbons mailed to you. It's worth the price, and you're supporting good people who run an excellent business. Next time on Intriguing Interviews, therapy as we know it has been around for over 100 years. But does it work? Does talking about your problems while a therapist listens and nods make you happier? Does unconditional acceptance and support really inspire us to be our best? Heck, does it do any good at all? To find answers, we'll talk with a very unique therapist named Jaap Hollander from the Netherlands. He'll offer little-known insights into our psychology and explain why traditional therapy can make people more crazy. He'll share stories that stretch from the insane asylum to the top ranks of the police department. And he'll explain why he thinks it's better for therapists to tell patients they're bound to fail to call them nasty nicknames, and to make jokes at their expense. Plus, he'll give you a live demonstration. With me. You'll get to hear Yop put me through the psychological meat grinder. And, well, let's just say meat grinders are called that for a reason. That's next time on a gut-wrenchingly awkward episode of Intriguing Interviews. <laughs>